solo performance and solo performance. Hi, I'm Steve, Steve Greer, theatre academic and writer, and in this series I'm exploring how and why and where solo performance gets made. This means asking some very practical, straightforward questions about where the money comes from, the kinds of spaces and places where solo performance takes place, but also thinking about the larger role that solo performance perhaps plays in our culture and its close relationship to things like identity and autobiography. In this episode, I talk with the prolific playwright Joe Clifford. Joe is someone with more than 80 plays to her name, both for the stage and for radio. And in our conversation, maybe you'll get a sense of the variety of the projects that she's produced over the years. But she's also someone who has a very clear sense of how her identity as a performer relates to her identity offstage, to her sense of self. And in particular, her sense of self as a trans woman. Our conversation starts with a project which was originally written for the Travis, but ended up becoming one of her first solo works. Here's Joe. Well, what happened was that the um, the Travis commissioned me to uh, write a play about Lordka that would be for the uh, centenary of his birth in 1998. Mm-hmm. This was quite early on in the 90s, I can't quite remember when, but it coincided with a time when I had... I was really beginning to write about being trans. I thought it was time I started to tackle this. And because Lorca meant so much to me as when I was a, when I was a boy, uh, I came across him when I was 14 or something, when I was learning Spanish, and I loved his work without really understanding why. Uh, but as I, as I grew older and I discovered he was gay, and I began to think about what it meant to be a gay man in that horribly repressive mm-hmm. macho society I could see parallels between his life and my life as a trans woman again in a horribly repressive mm. and difficult cultural situation well, every sort of situation actually mm. and so that was that was what the play was about very very hard to write because it involved confronting all the shame that I had in me um, and I finished it uh, you know, the tra- it was a commission from the Travis and they turned it down. And it was around about the time Ian Brown left and then uh, John Tiffany came in. I shouldn't mm-hmm. be mentioning these names, but I'm going to. And he commissioned me to write a piece about uh, just a short play. Okay. And I wrote about uh, the child of a Serbian warlord who was trans and her difficulties with her with her dad, a short play. And that was turned out. And I began to think, and that ended really, that finally ended my artistic relationship with the Travis, which had been very long and very fruitful. Yeah. So it was a very, very traumatic time for me. And then I thought, well, okay, um, There were two two things that happened. One was that I wanted to... I didn't want to waste the play about Lorca. <laughs> <laughs> so I turned it into a radio play called Ain't Grand to be blooming well dead. And then I was asked... I was invited to take part in a conference organised by Northern Stage uh, called a Lorca Fiesta. Uh, and I thought I'd perform. And that was the first time, actually, that I'd really performed a piece in public and expected it really badly. But I would say that... Mm, and then the next time was um, God's New Frock in 2001. You've yeah. probably come across God's New yeah, Frock. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was self-funded. 
So, but that that impulse, that first impulse, we come to God's new frock of you thinking. See how this invitation to take part in this conference, mm. the impulse that that you would that you would perform it, that yeah. I would perform it, yeah. is. Can you do you remember it being oh. kind of out of necessity, or does this like well, did it well, make perfect well, sense? Or? Well, there were, well, there were two things going on. One was that. Um, This is quite a long story. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, uh, um, so I'm just trying to think of a way of abbreviating it. But, but, but essentially, I, when I was about four, one of my very earliest moments is looking in the mirror and mm-hmm. not totally recognising the boy I saw, feeling that that boy in some way that I couldn't understand or that absolutely terrified mm-hmm. me was not me. Yeah. Now... Years and years and years and years and years later, I can look back at that memory and say, yeah, that was gender dysphoria. Hmm. That's what that was about. But, I mean, there just wasn't the language no. in any any dimension. This was 1954, so there was no way for me to understand it and there was no way for me to talk to anybody about it. And then as I grew older, I started to want to play with girls' toys. I started to want to wear girls' clothes. And when I was 14... Uh, I got an invitation to uh, take part in school plays, playing girls' parts. And I just adored it. Uh, the minute I was in the rehearsal room, I felt completely at home. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, I wasn't shy anymore. I was, you know, I knew what I was doing. There was a place for me in the world. And again, looking back on it, that's because at that moment, I discovered my vocation. My vocation was actually as a performer. But, unfortunately, (laughs) (laughs) by the second year of doing this, I realised that, you know, I was getting into adolescence. I was about 14, 15 years old. And I realised that, actually, I would be happier living as a girl. And in that time, 1965, that was just... An impossibility. A complete and total impossibility. It was about the most shameful and appalling thing that I could I could aim to, you know, I could feel. And uh, the only option for me was to try to, you know, live as a normal boy yeah. and try and repress this. Um, and I, I still wanted to act, but when I went for boys' parts, men's parts, I couldn't do it. And the whole of theatre, in fact, became associated with the fear and the trauma and the shame of that moment. Uh, the pull of theatre was very, very strong, um, and it eventually drew me to writing a PhD about Calderon. Yes. So, you know, that's what that was. That was a kind of safe way of of, of, of just, approaching the of approaching the theatre. And then uh, in nineteen thirty, in nineteen eighty, I translated a Calderon play, and so that was my first introduction. I've been trying to be a novelist and failing. That was the first time I'd had a you know, dramatic work on stage. Tiny audiences, but they laughed at the jokes. And then I knew that I, that yeah, I, that was, was, it. That, that, that I was a playwright. And then it was 1985 um, that I uh, became, uh, you know, that I, Losing Venice was on in, in the Travis, and it was a big hit, and I really found my voice as a writer. Yeah. So that was let me just see so that was about 20 years took me 20 years after that trauma to find my way back to the theatre 
And then I wrote an awful lot because I had to, because there was no other way of making a living. You had to write a lot in order yeah. to gain, gain, gain an amount of money. So, yes, yeah, so here there I was, writing a lot and trying to understand. And I sort of realised that when I wrote, I, was, I wasn't just being the character. I wasn't just letting the character take me over in a way. Another bit of my brain was being the performer. And so I was speaking the words on stage, and that was how I knew whether a line was good or not. And that meant that I still had a very strong performer's instinct, and I realised that. And then somehow it became clear to me that I needed to bring that instinct out into the open, and that was going to be very crucial for me in terms of overcoming the trauma of being trans and becoming more and more open and becoming, essentially becoming myself. Yeah. So, so in that sense, this artistic quest was a, was was a, a pers- personal one. Was a personal one. Um, and then also, of course, um, by the time I started to, to really write about uh, trans themes, I, I realised that I needed to work with trans actors. Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> there weren't any. No. <laughs> There's a, and it still feels... I mean, I, there's a, a friend of mine um, who works with a really great London-based organisation called Gendered Intelligence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one of their kind of ambitions is to kind of build pathways for trans performers mm. into professional, mm. into, into screen work and stage yeah, work and yeah. radio work. Yeah. Um, and it feels as though that project has just begun, which feels so ludicrous mm. to kind of go... Of the last... I mean, they've been inactive for quite a few years, but yeah. the sense that it still has only just begun yeah. is, is extraordinary yeah. to me. Yeah. So, so, so in a sense, it's like you know, in the absence of of, of again, there's a, there's a there's another kind of element that comes in in my head suddenly, which is in the absence of trans performers who you might cast, you are that trans performer. Yeah. 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 So when it comes to uh, God's New Frock, which is a couple of years later, and that's the work which has kind of got these two threads. Of the the boy called Billy who mm. wants to be who really wants to be a girl mm. and a god who has a wardrobe full of, mm. of frocks is mm. the two threads of that mm. um, and there's a program there I think it's on maybe it's on in might be on your website or I've, I've seen it somewhere else where you talk about it as an experiment you say I've written about sixty plays but I've never performed in one of my own at that point mm. so that was the next step forward was it yeah yeah obviously to try and Yes, I mean, yeah, that was the next step forward to try and see if it was possible to, um, to, to you know, to create a play, fifty minutes or an hour, and just manage to do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and clearly, I did. I did. You know, I did it. I took it very gently. I, I remember working. It was a script in hand presentation. Mm-hmm. And then on the next year, lovely director Lorenzo Mella helped me put it on. I mean, I, you know, again, it was all self-funded. There was no other way of getting the stuff on. It was lucky I was lecturing at the time. Um, so that's how it happened. Yeah. Okay. And then that 
if I've got it right, that was... Well, actually, before I come on to that, but at the time, I mean, I'm just thinking we'll talk maybe a little bit about the kind of response and some of the hostility to to mm. to, um, to the gospel calling to Jesus Christ, Queen of Heaven. Mm. But at that point, was there... What was the kind of response to that, kind of professionally or critically, or was that something well, that didn't seem to cause any waves? It, it, it seemed to go very well. I mean, it, you know, we, we sold out in the Tron, we sold out in the Travis. People seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of nice reviews. And I was actually ready to carry on doing it. But, unfortunately, my producer, <laughs> uh, dear love, got uh, meningitis. Oh, no. Uh, and so he just couldn't work for, for years. And the other thing that happened in the course of this was that I had a, a pretty serious nervous breakdown. Um, it was actually in between the Tron. This is, this is a really interesting moment, actually. Mm-hmm. It was in between the Tron and the Travis. Um, I turned up to work in uh, the gateway, beginning of term. Looked at the looked at the timetable, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. You couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't make sense of it, and I started to cry, and I couldn't stop. I just couldn't. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Um, and a dear colleague said, "You really need to go home. You just, you know." <laughs> so, so I went home. I saw a doctor. I was off work for three or four months. There was a time when I didn't think I'd be able to write again. Just couldn't have the concentration. Um, it felt as if my that my life had ended. Actually, I couldn't couldn't see any any way forward for me as an artist. But I had this problem because in a fortnight's time I was supposed to be performing this show in the Travers, and I thought, well, probably I should you know I should I should cancel it. That would be the sensible thing to do. But really, just to give myself something to do, I was up in my room and I went through the moves Yeah, I went through the lines and I discovered I still remembered everything and it made me feel quite good to do it and I spoke to Lorenzo and we decided to go ahead and it was an extraordinary experience because there I was in the deepest despair and distress doing a one-person show in the traffic. <laughs> and I felt so happy. While I was on stage, I felt happy. And I can distinctly remember, because every night I would arrive early and I would just walk through everything on the stage and say my lines, and then and I'd go up and sit on the steps outside the Usher Hall and the sun was just setting and, it was very, and I'd feel happy. And in the middle of this incredible turmoil it felt very safe to be performing clearly part of the process you know I was speaking about how performing was part of um, uh, transitioning mm-hmm. and as, as the whole process of transitioning then, then suddenly performing became more and more important and then once I'd re- written the play and I was very surprised to find that Jesus was the main character but there she was dear love um, yeah, I realised I had to do it, and but I didn't really understand the significance of what I was doing at the time. Um, I mean, gosh, two thousand and nine. I had a little bit. I had my little bit of uh, bit of surgery and my orchidectomy. Uh, I went off to uh, France. I was a Robert Louis Stevenson fellow in that gorgeous place, and I came back at the end of August and more or less went into rehearsal. And what I hadn't 
quite taken on board was there'd been all that controversy about the Bible and that had really got the religious fundamentalists stirred up. Uh, and, you know, they'd said, oh, we think there's going to be a little bit of a protest. Uh, but I still, when I turned up to the opening night and there was the, there was the street literally full to overflowing with protesters. And there's nothing that can prepare anyone just, for that. I just, I, I was completely freaked out. I'd sort of expected it to be more or less the same as with God's New Frock, that nobody yeah. would really mind. You know, I mean, God's New Frock, I accused the Bible of being pornographic. And, and that didn't seem to... But that didn't seem to bother anybody. But, oh. but Jesus as a trans woman, just... Whew, and the, the, the image, I mean, a dear friend of mine, uh, Neil... I remember, I, I put on, I borrowed a white a white blouse and a white skirt from a friend of mine. Um, we took the photo in the garage, the basement garage. <laughs> I think I've seen the image. I've seen the image. It's beautiful. It's a really gorgeous image, isn't it? I mean, it was and it was done. And he had lights, but he but he got terribly excited by the emergency light that went on. <laughs> so you pr- presumably you had what keep moving around to get yes, the I emergency. Had to again. <laughs> I had to kind of go, and, <laughs> and then somehow looked serene. I don't know how on earth we did it. Anyway, he photoshopped it really beautifully, but that really really outraged people. Um, and 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 as is so often the case, outraged them without having seen the work or having oh, any interest in reading the work or not at all I mean the the protesters never ever 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 want to read the work they don't want to know anything about it and one of them said to a friend of mine who said well look you know you don't know anything about this play and they said well you don't have to go near a sewer to know that it stinks and that's always been the attitude of these yeah. people um, and I mean I learned that first night that there were the wildest rumours going around about what I was going to do on stage, that I was going to... Uh, what was I going to do? I was uh, There was leather-clad nuns who were going to masturbate me. I was going to tear up the Bible and wipe my bum with it. I was... I, you know, I mean, just completely and, grotesque fantasies. And you kind of go, what those... I always like, read back from fantasies and go, what desire does that express on the part of the person who traffics in them? Exactly. Exactly. It was all about them. And... But it was very, very frightening. I was really terrified um, and very traumatised by it, I must say. Yeah, but again, getting up on the stage and doing it every night. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was fine. It was all right. <laughs> because, because clearly this is, performing is something I need to do. And so, when, you know, when you're doing something you need to do, you feel all right about it. So, um no, it was fine once I got on stage. I started, I mean, it took, took me about a year to recover, and then mm-hmm. I started to do it. I remember I did it in um, in the church, my church I go to, uh, Augustine United. I did it in uh, a hotel room in Liverpool. Um, <laughs> and then, then, there was, then an invitation came to do it at Pink Fringe in Brighton. Okay. And I thought, well, I, I need to find a director. My, my first director had said, no, right after the show, and she said, I can't, I can't, I can't, work, on can't this. work on this. It's just too much. So is this when you started working with uh, Susan Walsh? Well, that's exactly it, because th- that year I'd had a show called um, An Apple a Day that I'd written for Oren Moore and the Travers. 
Uh, it's all about uh, based on a true story actually of a trans prostitute I knew. And a uh, young actor called David Walsh played she, as she was called, um, uh, a, cis, a cis man. Um, again, there were no trans actresses. It was, the part was too young for me. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any confidence really to do it. And she said, and she did the play, and she came along to see Jesus, and she, we had and we had a meal or coffee or something afterwards, yeah. and she said, "I want to, I want to be in a play with you." And that was another incredibly important moment because I thought, wow, this really fine actor wants to work with me. So I must actually, this isn't just something I've made up in my head. This is yeah, something I can this really is real. Do. Yeah. And I said, oh, that would be wonderful. But, um, you know, we need to find a director. And she said, well, I know the very person. And it was Susan. Um, Susan had taught her voice. And, and she's Susan is just a remarkable, remarkable, just incredible. And... Um, so we started to work on on a separate project called called Sex Chips and Early Ghost. Mm-hmm. And when I got the invitation to Brighton, I said to Susan, "Look, would you like? I'll let's split the fee and let's do it together." And she, her family has a flat or something in Brighton, so it was all possible. And that's how our working relationship began. Okay. And that must have been about. I don't know, I don't know, 2011 maybe, 2011, something like that. Yeah. Still, it was still true then that acting and performing just went right against the abuse that that I had suffered. Uh, and it was abuse. I mean, there's, there's no question yeah. about it. <laughs> and so I always felt terribly insecure and as if I wasn't, you know, as if the, the, the work wasn't good enough and blah, blah, blah. And I remember trying twice to get the show, to put the show on during the Festival of uh, Justice and Peace, I think it was called then, in uh, St. John. Uh, And then it started to be called Just the Just Festival. And they were terribly interested again in 2015. 2015, And then the committee again hated it, turned it down. So we needed to find somewhere else i ha- i haven't i'd been to that church st marks to meditate mm-hmm. quite a few times i knew the uh, knew the minister and so that's how that happened and we the only slot that was available at that stage was late at night <laughs> <laughs> and so we we went for it yeah thought it would be a good way to end the day uh really out of the way venue yeah not known for theatre at all we had great difficulty getting anybody to come along. I mean, none of the critics, strangely enough, saw the first production. Mm-hmm. None of them. They'd all been seeing a show about the Bruins that had been going on in the big Tron. Yeah. They missed They missed it, and they none of them seemed to want to come again. I, it was just very difficult. But the Scottish, the uh, British Council in Brazil got interested in that all oh, so okay. so that's a British other, Council. That, okay. That's a whole other separate mm-hmm. story. And Liliane Rebelo uh, had... Had said, I don't know, friend, uh, Natalia was coming along. Natalia Malo, uh, a, a, a director, producer, I mean, she's an extraordinary woman. And she was going to see something else. And Lily said, No, you're not going. You're going along to see Jesus, Queen of Heaven. <laughs> Natalia went, Okay. <laughs> and off she went. I think it was her first night. I think, you know, okay. she, she just, and, and so she turned up. Half past ten, saw the show, 
And then afterwards, you know, I was saying hello to people, and there was this Brazilian woman saying, I'm going to translate this. Will okay. you hear me? Give me the script. And I went, okay. <laughs> and so she did. She translated it mostly yeah. that night, that very night. She sat up all night to translate it. It made such a deep, deep impression on her. And then eventually, earlier this year, um, yes, the, the, the Brazilian production happened. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. So, the, uh, so it came back to, most recently, was it Summer Hall? So I, I and in brought quite a, a different kind of space. I brought in a very different. I mean, you know, St Mark's was a church. Mm. Summer Hall was an old was the old anatomy lecture. Yeah, which yeah. is a beautiful room, but utterly different. So it's... completely different, and it you know it worked. We could make it work there as well. Uh, and that for the first time in my life, that was a properly funded production because Made in Scotland funded it. All right. Uh, that's the first time. <laughs> first time I've had any real public money to, to, to put the show on. Are you conscious? Uh, this kind of all, while this kind of these shows are, are going on and you're writing for them and writing them, perhaps knowing that you're going to perform them, mm. does it mean, does it involve a kind of gear change when you know you're writing a, a kind of a, a, a work with? multiple cast members mm. that you don't anticipate yourself being cast in any of the parts mm. is there a different sensibility at stake there well well what 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 there, there is a there is a limitation which i have to work hard to overcome um which is which is that i think oh, i've got to make it easy for myself okay uh when i write for a professional actor i don't even think about that you know in fact i make the work break the work is Always very complicated. Uh, but if I'm writing for myself, and I can distinctly remember it with God's New Frock, and again, when I was doing the first version of uh, Jesus, Queen of Heaven, I thought I would kind of go, oh, I'm not sure I'll be able to do that. And that, so there was a little bit of self-censorship creeping into it, which I had to very strongly resist. And just, again, because you have to, you have to listen to the character. Wherever the character takes you, you have to go. Because if you try and... Get all worried and censor it, and they just kind of protecting the performer self of you yeah. rather than letting the playwright yeah. 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 version so of you do their right. job. That's right. Uh, and so I, so I had to work very, very fiercely at that. Yeah, but uh, I think I think that's over now. I think I've overcome that. <laughs> <laughs> the um, there. I mean, it, this maybe kind of brings us up to the what you're working on. Um, with Chris Good mm. for National Theatre mm. Scotland, mm. but um. Well, yeah. Well, maybe let's talk about how you started. Was was the first project with Chris Good? Was that the the was that on everyone, or did you start working with him before then? Or? No, I started working with Chris before then. So, do you want a bit more tea? No, I'm good at the moment. Thank You're you. Okay. I'm still... um, he he was in. There was a show called The Author. Oh yes. Do you remember The Author? Yes. Fantastic show in the Travis. I can't remember which year it was, um, but and I th- and I. I thought, yeah, I want the Tim Crouch. I think that amazing. He's such a good, such a good theatre artist. Um, and I, I wanted to see it, but I didn't want. I heard that there was quite a lot of kind of audience yeah. interaction and stuff, and I thought, oh god, I don't really want to do that. I'll sit, you know, at the back in the middle of a row, and yeah, and I'll be safe. But when I got down, I discovered I couldn't do that because the whole 
the whole thing set up as is there is there is no really stage space. Was, You're sat was, facing was, each there was, other. There was no stage space. There was there was nothing that helped me do that. I thought, oh, fuck. And then lots of people knew me. It was very sweet. I was going to say hello to people. And I thought, where am I going to sit? And I saw a really nondescript-looking guy. And I thought, and he was sort of a little, sort of halfway back. And I thought, oh, he'll be safe enough. I'll, <laughs> I'll sit next to him because he's obviously got nothing to do with the, with the play. And he turned out to be Chris Good. <laughs> and much of the play was about his interaction with whoever was sitting next to him. Yeah. So, you know, kind of... But we had a really good time interacting. And uh, I got to know him. And then the following year, he'd lost his mother. And he came back... When he was in Edinburgh, he saw my show, Leave to Remain, which was about bereavement. And he was crying so much. He had to rush off at the end so he couldn't get a chance to talk to him. And then one thing led to another. And when he was... Uh, producing a show called Albemarle, which eventually turned into the Albemarle sketchbook. There were two development weeks, and then there was a third week leading to a performance in the West Yorkshire Playhouse. He asked me to join the company, and I ended up playing his mum, which was wonderful. I mean, it was just wonderful. I so loved it. (laughs) Um, Meantime, he'd read everyone, because he got interested in my work, and he just wanted to do everyone. And then... I've made various attempts to write this play for the National Theatre. Uh, well, actually, one, 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 one attempt, um, which was a reworking of another attempt for another company that hadn't got anywhere. It was kind of like oh, endless thing called Queen Echinacea, which has never seen the light of day and probably <laughs> never will. And, but Laurie said, well, I, I'd really like you to do something for us. Yeah. And I said, I probably need to collaborate with somebody on the writing of it because every time I wrote directly about my own experience, I would just come up against all this shame and all this distress and I would put myself through agony, really, trying to, trying to write it. That's what I need. I need somebody strong and steady to help me. And that's how I started to collaborate with Chris on this project. Okay. So, yeah, so this is... Um, this is... Eve to Cora Bissett's Adam. So what's that working relationship like? Do you sit in a room together? Do you trade things, uh, files back and forth by email? No, we, we have to be in a room together. It's, it's no use emailing Chris. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be in a room together. Uh, and we've spent three weeks together mm-hmm. in rooms. The, the first week, I can remember, I brought on a whole load of photographs. And we did a massive timeline of my life Uh and we created something out of that, actually. And then the second week, we took it a bit further. And then the third week, I remember renting a, a flat through Airbnb in uh, London. And we again, it was another week. And this was actually about doing a script. And it was a sort of funny mixture. I, I felt I'd didn't done most of the writing. And Ben and Chris did a lot of the shaping. And when I came to read it... It was very clearly not just my work. It was Chris's mm-hmm. work as well. It was very interesting. Chris is kind of like, threw it like a stick of rock. Chris Good. <laughs> There's this note that, I can't think at what point you've written, that you say, I like to think of my plays as, as presents to the actors or gifts mm. to the actors. Mm. Is it more difficult when the gift has to come to you? Well, I'm, no, I don't, I don't know, really. I don't think so. Like, because... Because I'm just thinking about you know you, that you, you, this relationship that you've 
on this project in particular as a way of you being able to talk about this material, which might otherwise be quite difficult. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, I think, because actually, I mean, I say that sort of thing, but when I'm writing it, I'm not thinking like that at all. I'm just <laughs> focusing on the, on the character. And I think, in a way, this particular project is, it's very similar in the sense that I'm taking aspects of myself, I'm taking aspects of my life, and I'm creating a character that, you know, talks on stage does things on stage but normally what happens is that the the bits of myself get given different names pip miss haversham faust whatever yeah. and in this case they're they're a character called joe um and so there's a kind of there's going to be a kind of blurring between but i but i'm very clear in my head that this joe is got inverted commas. Oh, this is the this is the the stage, this is the theatre version of This is Eve. This is this is this is the Joe is the main character in Eve. Uh, and it's gonna be very definitely a, a version of me, but it will not be me. So that was Joe Clifford, who I could sit and talk to for hours. Joe was incredibly generous with her time and with the detail of her life and her practice. And hopefully that's come across in the edited version of our conversation for this podcast. So Eve was originally presented during the 2017 uh, Edinburgh Festival at the Traverse Theatre, where it was alongside a second play about contemporary trans life called Adam. Both shows are going to transfer to the Citizens Theatre in early September. So if you didn't get yourself to Edinburgh during the Fringe, get yourself to Scotland in the next month and you can pick up both shows. I think Eve is a really important piece of theatre. It has a really distinctive voice and you get a sense of Joe's command of the detail of her life, both as a playwright and as a performer, which makes it something special. So it's a piece of autobiographical performance which I think extends beyond the detail of an individual life. You don't want to miss it if you can possibly avoid it. For more episodes of this series, why not visit my website stevegreer.org. For now, thanks for listening.